David Faubert was what you call a cupper. That means he's a professional coffee taster. This guy has near superhuman taste buds. And they are actually certified, I'm not making this up, by the New York Board of Trade. All right? There, he's one of only 48 people, was one, he's passed away last year, but he's one of only 48 people in the whole world with this level of certification um, for, for coffee. If he, he's able to tell you not only that a coffee came from Guatemala, but what state in Guatemala it came from, at what altitude it was grown, and on which mountain. He's that good. It's basically a superpower, okay? So I'm just curious if anybody else in here has that superpower. If you can tell the difference between a, a Kenyan single origin that was freshly ground this morning and the Walmart version of Folgers that was probably ground in Arkansas six weeks ago. So we're going to test this morning, and I need two volunteers. I need people who are just total, total coffee heads, okay? Do you have anybody who's just really into coffee? Like, you can drink it with cream and sugar, but you really prefer it black so you can pick up all the different flavors and notes in the coffee. I just need a couple people to come help me out this morning. I have nothing else to do today. So... <laughs> Uh, anybody? There's one right there. Okay, yes, ma'am. Come on up. One more. I need another. Okay. Right, okay. Someone's getting voluntold. Um, Steve, all right. Come on up. All right, Jess. Good deal. Come on up. Thank you both. All right. Here's, we're going to make a little French press preparation for you here today. I'm going to, if I can get it all. Uh, it may be. I had to, we had our first session of Wired this morning, so about Five minutes ago, I was down the hall teaching in the fellowship hall. <laughs> so this was, it was hot and in the carafe. I believe we're going to be okay. Um, so we're going to do this. I don't know if you guys have ever made coffee French press style. We're going to let that just sit for a second. Now, you were in your American, all right, see, we belong. This is good. This, I don't know. Yeah, oh, you can do it too. Very good. Yeah, awesome. Okay, good deal. I took it. I just, uh, the red, white, and blue is it's darker. Anyway, um, so what we're going to do is I want to do a little history lesson on the connection between coffee and America. Did you know that? Because what we're about to do is one of the most patriotic things you could ever do in your whole life, all right? Here's, how the, here's the deal. So, um, you know, back in the 1700s, a lot of people in the colonies came over from England, and they took all their habits from England with them, right? So they drank tea. Well, when the king of England, George III, realized, like, hey, here's a source of revenue, he passed the Tea Act, which levied a tax on the colonials' drinking of tea. And they're like, uh-uh-uh, you're not going to let us speak into the government on this. You're not going to let us say what we, you know, not going to represent us. We're going to dump it in the harbor. So before it ever hits land and you can tax us, they just dumped it all in Boston Harbor, became known as the Boston Tea Party. Well, they, they're addicted to caffeine, like we all are, right? The founding fathers were just as messed up as us, and so they, they have to get it somewhere, so they switched to coffee. So that they wouldn't drink, so to get their morning caffeine fix, they switched to coffee. Now here's how we're going to do this. We're going to just let this kind of go. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever made coffee this way. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, every day, really. Oh, man, okay. So you, you gotta, do you do your coffee this way ever? Nope, okay. Well, she's going to beat you. Um, <laughs> it's not a competition. It's right. He grinds his own beans. Okay, good, good, good. So here's the thing. Drinking a morning cup of joe is about the most American thing you can do because in the early days of the revolution, they would meet at coffee houses. 
And that's where so much of what we know as the American form of government got ironed out. It got ironed out in a coffee house. In fact, the Declaration of Independence was first read to the public for the very first time in a coffee house. Another one in Boston is known as the headquarters of the revolution. So this is American, all right? So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to test your coffee knowledge this morning, all right? I'm going to do two different preparations here for you, okay? So we've got coffee A and coffee B. Coffee A and coffee B. One of them, this is A, right? Okay, yep, is uh, from... Ethiopia, it's single origin. Both of them are medium roast, okay? Uh, I prefer a dark roast myself, but uh, that's not everybody's cup of coffee. So, um, see what I did there? Uh, so, all right, so we've got A and B. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell me which one is the good stuff and which one is the cheap stuff, okay? So, you've got, <laughs> uh, so there's that, there's A and B, okay? So give it a shot, taste it, see, hopefully you like it relatively hot, right? Still hot enough, good. Okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) So one of them is the Walmart version of Folgers. One of them is a, a Starbucks single origin, freshly ground this morning. What do you think? B is the good one? Okay, what do you think? Okay. Well, this was not supposed to be easy. Okay. Well, it may not be the heat that you're used to. A? Well, it's actually B. Yeah, I may not have prepared it right. Ah, it is. Maybe that's the single origin thing throwing you off. Because it's a, the A would be a blend. All right, very good. Give me a hand, would you please? Yay, good job. You can take it with you if you want. You can take it with you, Steve, if you want. There you go. Yeah, all right, yeah. All right, good deal. Hey, thank you for being here today. I, if you're new here at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you when we're done. My name's Casey. I'd, I'd love to learn yours. Please come down here, down front, and say hi. For those of you joining us online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate those of you who do that. If you're local to Indy, please come visit us on site. There's something you can only get when you're here in the room, like coffee. Um, so, uh, <laughs> we're in a sermon series this summer called Superpowered, and we're looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we become a Christian. When, when you give your life to Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit enters into you, he brings gifts, and he powers you up to serve the Lord, all right? And so we're looking at that. Uh, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 is where we're going to start today. Last week we looked at Romans 12. Today we're looking at 1 Corinthians 12. Both passages talk about spiritual gifts. It's just kind of one of those things to tuck back in the corners of your mind that in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 both talk about spiritual gifts. It's just kind of one of those things you should know. Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He talks about spiritual gifts. And then when he writes to the church at Corinth, he actually gives them a different list. It's not the same. Which tells me a couple things. Number one, Paul really knew that church. He knew where their gifts lie. But also it says that God can arrange this the way he wants. And he's sovereign and he gives the gifts to who he wants to give them to. And some some churches may have a bunch of one gift and none of the other. And another church might have all of that and, and only one of the other. And, and that's up to God to do, okay? So we're going to look at this passage together this morning and then drill down on what it's talking about. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. 
Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. Now skip down to verse 10. Look at this, okay? Verse 10. To another, distinguishing between spirits. You see that right there in the middle of the page. Okay, so those are the gifts that we're going to look at today. Message of wisdom, message of knowledge, distinguishing between spirits. These are three distinct gifts that Paul is talking about. They're they're three different things, all right? But I've combined them into kind of one idea for the purpose of this message. Uh, If we we took every gift that's mentioned in the New Testament and gave each one a whole week, it would take us up until Thanksgiving, okay? There's a lot of them. So I'm kind of combining three here. We're going to call this the superpower of super strategy. Super strategy, all right? And the best example I can think of in the whole world of superheroes that embodies this is, I bet you couldn't guess from what I'm wearing, Captain America, all right? Now, for those who may not know, Cap is really one of the earliest superheroes that we know of. Um, You know, Batman and Superman 75, 80 years ago, those guys were introduced. Cap was back in 1941, uh, in, a, in a comic series called Timely Comics, as a predecessor of Marvel, uh, they introduced Captain America as kind of a super patriot soldier who's off to fight the Axis powers of World War II. All right? And then after the war, they, they kind of put, they retired Cap for a while, brought him back briefly in the 50s just for like a few episodes, a few issues when uh, the whole McCarthyism, communism, Cold War stuff. And then they put him back in the, in the box for a long time. And he was revived in the Avengers comic by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1960s. Okay? This idea, he's a frail 90-pound weakling. He gets exposed to the super soldier serum and vita rays, and they turn him into the peak of human perfection, the living paragon of American virtue, the, the, the epicenter of patriotism for our country, Captain America. Now, even though Cap is able to perform you know, any task of any elite Olympic athlete, here's the thing, he doesn't really have any powers per se. He's just the peak of human perfection at everything. So he can do what an Olympic power lifter can do, but he can also beat Usain Bolt in a race. He, he, he can do it all, all right? So every, and he can punch out Hitler. Awesome. Hashtag America, right? So that's just fantastic. I love that, all right? He can also trade punches with cosmic demigods like we saw in Infinity War and stuff. But all of that is not what makes him a hero. What makes him a hero is his discernment. What makes him a hero is his moral compass. The fact that he just seems to have an insight into human nature and is able to help people just decide what to do in a tough situation to be able to to call the play and have it be right. And and it just, you know, he's not perfect. He's not perfect. I remember reading as a little kid, I, I was 12 years old, and I was reading The Avengers. This is the true story. This really happened. And I'm flipping through the pages, and I get to one page, and Captain America, Steve Rogers, is, <laughs> is sitting in a bar, drinking a beer with a woman, not his wife, and he kissed her. And I'm like, as 12 years old, that's like four sins. Like, I couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around. It's not perfect. But typically, his moral compass is just right on. And his ability to strategize and see the situation and understand what should happen is just right where it needs to be. Watch. Beats everything Cap said, but like, wow, okay, we should, he knows what to do. We should listen to this guy. I believe that the spiritual gifts of knowledge and wisdom and discernment do the same thing for the church in the 21st century. And that we need people with those gifts to exercise them 
here. All right, here's the big idea this morning. The church needs people who can keep us on track and on task. On track doctrinally and on task, on task missionally. The church needs people who can keep us on track and on task. All right? Now, like we just did a couple weeks ago, we're going to follow this format, the text, the tale, and the truth. Here's the text in, Romans, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7. I want to drill down on what these words mean. Because Paul talks about these, this gift of wisdom, all right? That's the capacity to understand the world and act skillfully based on that understanding. When it's applied to gifts, it's the supernatural ability that, to just kind of just get what's going on. When, when you talk about gifts this way, it's this idea that, that someone with the gift of wisdom just kind of gets the world. They understand it in, in ways that maybe other people don't. They just kind of have a sense of insight into, uh, that's, that's not the way that works. And he also talks about knowledge. Now, that, the word that he uses there is one that means in Scripture, experiential knowledge. Like, I, I, I know this because I've experienced it. But Paul is describing something that comes from God. So here's what this gift is. In the church, this gift is someone borrowing, supernaturally borrowing, God's omniscience. They're given a gift of knowledge. That they know something that there's no other way for them to know except that God revealed it to them. It's a gift of knowledge and it's, it's, to, it's to benefit and bless the church. They're borrowing from God's experience being omniscient, knowing everything, okay? And they're able to bless the church with that. It's, this, it's a message of knowledge. It's the sense that God said, to, it just whispered in their heart, Paul, I, I need you to go to Macedonia. It, it's this, this kind of revelatory gift, and it's to bless and benefit the church. And, and, and sometimes other people don't understand it, but like, no, maybe you've been in a room where someone said, I, guys, I just got this feeling in my gut. We need to go do whatever. And they ended up being right. Because if they're wrong, it wasn't God. It was a pizza late, late last night or something. I don't know, the hot dogs. But um, it, it's, it has to be right. And then the third thing is this distinguishing of spirits. And this is the capacity to discern whether or not the, this spiritual manifestation is from God or from the enemy or just their own human psyche. And which was really important in the Corinthian church because of all the speaking in tongues stuff, right? That, that Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 14. It, this, it's this idea of the discerning gift is able to go, that's from God, that's from your own soul, that's from the enemy. <laughs> Had a conversation with somebody just this week who... You know, woke up in the middle of the night, chest pounding, worried about something. And so we got to talk about, is that from God or is that fear? <laughs> you know, and the gift of discernment is able to listen to that. And you know, I was desperately praying for that gift in that moment. Please, God, help me understand what's going on here. All right? Now, I want to be clear. These are three different gifts. All right? But they, they kind of play in the same orbit. They, they, they do roughly the same thing for the church. They help the church understand the world. They help the church engage with the community around us. They help us kind of tell the difference between what's good and bad, okay? Um, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, John MacArthur summarizes the implications of these gifts this way. He says, it can be said that the gift of discernment is given to tell if the other gifts are of the Holy Spirit, if they're merely natural imitations or if they're demonic counterfeits. I believe that God still empowers some of his people to unmask false prophets and carnal hypocrites. He gives them insight to expose imitations and deceptions that most Christians would take 
is genuine. Now listen, we're all called to be wise, right? Well, James 1.5 says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God and he will give it to you. We're all called to be wise. We're all called to practice discernment. But some people have a special gifting that way. That, now that's true of a lot of these gifts, right? It, it's true of a lot of things. Last week, Fred was talking about serving. We're all called to serve. Some people have an extra special measure of it. Next week, we're going to talk about mercy. We're all called to show mercy. Some people just Holy Spirit powered good at it. And for others, it's harder, okay? So um, we're all called to be wise. 1 John 4.1 says that we're all called to test the Spirit. Same idea of discerning. Some people, though, are, are just especially gifted at it. And one place that we see this that is in this story in Acts 15. So the text was, was 1 Corinthians 12. Here's the tale, Acts 15, uh, starting in verse 12. If you want to turn there, go ahead. Now, the church was predominantly Jewish in its earliest days. For the first 10 years or so, the church was mostly made up of Jewish people. But in roughly 40 AD, Peter preaches the gospel to the Roman centurion Cornelius. We, we read about that in Acts chapter 10. And then the gospel goes to the Gentiles for the very first time. Within the next five years, somewhere within the next five years, um, some Christians from Cyprus and modern-day North Africa begin to tell the gospel message to Greek people, not Greek-speaking Jews, but Greek people in the city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria on the coast. Okay? And then Paul, within another few years, goes on his first missionary journey through modern-day Turkey, central Turkey, and he begins to tell the gospel both to Jews and to Greeks. And so what happens is the church in Jerusalem is hearing all these stories about the gospel going to people who are not Jewish. And they're trying to figure out, like, like the whole thing about, well, what if they're not circumcised like we're supposed to do under the law of Moses? Or what if they really enjoy a bacon cheeseburger? Because that's breaking two rules at once. You can't have meat and dairy together, and you're not supposed to have pig stuff. Like, what, what do we do with this? How do we do this? And so the church calls a council, and they meet in Jerusalem, all right? This is known in history as the first ecumenical council of the church. People from all over the Roman Empire gather in Jerusalem to try to sort this out, all right? So that's the background here. In this, there's a lot of conflict going on right now. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians trying to figure out, you know, some people are like, these Gentile Christians need to obey the law of Moses because Jesus kept the law. And, the, and some of the others are like, no, but we just have, we, we're, we trust, we have a relationship with God by grace through faith. We don't, they don't need to do that. They just need to trust Jesus and they already have. Like, what's your problem? A lot of conflict going on, okay? Look at what happens next in Acts 15. Verse 12, look at this. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now that's talking about the gifts of the tongues and speaking in tongues and healings and mirac other miracles. When they finished, James spoke up. I'm going to define which James this is here in a little bit. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Simon Peter, same guy has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Now he's going to quote from Psalms and then Isaiah. He says, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. Now here's James talking again. 
It is my judgment. That's an important word. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. In other words, it was sacrificed to an idol and then sold at a discount in the market. Okay, From sexual immorality, that's having sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse, if you're a man, wife if you're a man, husband if you're a woman. Okay, From the meat of strangled animals, part of a ritual sacrifice in pagan religion, and from blood. Now, they're not saying you can't enjoy a rare steak. What they're saying is you're not supposed to consume blood by itself. Again, part of pagan ritual, okay? Those four things from the Jewish law are carried over for the church. That's it, those four. He says, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, if they want more of the law, they can just go to the synagogue and they can get it. But those four things you need to teach, okay? Do you see what James is doing here? Now, this James is the half-brother of Jesus, Right? Now, if you come from a Catholic background, this may offend you. I don't, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to understand Scripture responsibly. Um, it's my understanding from what the Word of God teaches that after Jesus was born and the time of purification had ended, the text, I think, pretty clearly says that Joseph and Mary had other kids um, and, th- and that there are, other, there are other children in the relationship, as would have been normal in a Jewish family in that time. James is the next kid in the family. So Jesus is the firstborn. He's the eldest fathered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, then James is his half-brother, Joseph and Mary's next kid. Can, he's Jesus' little brother. Can you imagine what that would be like? <laughs> Why can't you be more like your brother, James? I don't know, Mom, because he's God? Um, no. Um, <laughs> he didn't come to that conviction until significantly later. But once he did, he's all in. Now, the other James, James and John, that James was the first martyr. He's the first one to die for his faith. Okay? The first of the apostles, rather, to, to do that. This James is, is one, he's, he becomes kind of the de facto kind of senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. The Peter and the apostles are, are focused on the global mission. Peter's there sometimes, sometimes he's off doing stuff. But James is really the, the day-to-day leader of the church in Jerusalem shortly after the time of Jesus. And I think he had this gift. I think he had the gift of discernment. And here's why. There's a lot of conflict right now in this time in the church's life, and they need people with this gift. When there's disagreement in the body of Christ, if you have this gift, you need to use it. Because we're in a situation in our culture where there's a significant level of conflict in some churches. It touches on issues of politics. Touches on issues of when does life begin? Touches on issues of how do we deal with people coming to this country? And some are saying one thing and some are saying something else. And if you don't know about this, apparently you haven't watched the news in the last three years. We need people with this gift to use it. If you have it, James is bold in this situation. He just speaks up. Guys, listen to me, he says. But he does it, I want you to notice this, in concert with the word of God, doesn't he? What's he do? When he speaks up like that, he appeals to scripture. He goes back to the text. And so when you, if you have this gift of discernment, you need to appeal to scripture as well. James, using his gift, is able to parse which parts of the Jewish law the Gentiles need to honor and, which, and incorporate into their newfound Jewish faith, and which parts that, that just kind of made the, the Israelites a, a particular people that God could use in that time, and they can, they can be ignored. 
James is able to use that gift to hear testimony of what God is doing around the world and go, all right, here's the parts we need to keep to maintain unity in the church. Here's the stuff we can let go of, and here's how to tell the difference. That's what, that's what James is doing in that, okay? Because let me, let me explain this. <sighs> the, the, if, the Gentile, if the Gentile faction would have said, all we got to do is believe, we don't have to do anything in the Jewish faith, it would have so deeply offended the, the Jewish Christians that they couldn't have fellowshiped together. Those four things that they said were so deeply offensive to Jewish Christians that they couldn't have been together, all right? If, let me give you an example. If I were standing up here, instead of wearing Captain America t-shirt, if I were wearing a Nazi swastika on my shirt, some of you would get up and leave. The rest of you should follow. And if that's your ideology, if you're here this morning and you think Hitler was right, there's the door, get out. That is abhorrent. It is absolutely hideous to the eyes of God. If you agree with Hitler, there's the door, you can leave. Don't come back. I, I, we're having some fun, but I don't, I don't take this lightly. I know it's just a t-shirt, but I, this is serious for me. Okay, I, that, it's the same thing. If, if some of you would be so deeply offended that, that I would do that. Like, I can't come back to that church ever, and you shouldn't if I were to do something that stupid. Okay? The same thing would be true for the Jews. For, Gentile, for, for them to, you know, eat the meat of an animal that had been ritually sacrificed and, and to an idol, like, I can't, I, can't even, I can't even look at you, man. <laughs> and it would have broken the church in half. And that's why James says not to do that. He's showing his gift of discernment, all right? So basically the way this functions is that it, um, it defines right and wrong for the church. It helps decide complex situations, and it defends the church against error. Ruth Haley Barton in her book, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, writes this. Discernment involves listening with love and attention to our experiences to each other, to the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit deep within ourselves and others, to scripture and Christian tradition, I would add in that order, to pertinent facts and information, to those who will be affected most deeply by our decisions, and to that place in us where God's spirit witnesses with our spirit about the things that are true. That's so good. Such a great description of what discernment is. It's best employed in situations where we have to make hard choices and, and, and make, try to find a way to make a hard situation easier. And if you have this gift, your use of it should make life better for the church. Sometimes people abuse it and they just end up causing trouble. Paul says that these gifts are to build up the church. So if you have the gift of discernment, some of you are like, I don't, how do I know that? There are assessments that you can take. It's a good starting point. Um, we just started it today, but next time around when we do Wired, if you haven't taken that, you need to be in Wired because we actually sit down with you and our leaders sit down with you and they talk through it and they kind of analyze, here are your gifts, here's where you should be serving. It's, it's a really great resource for that. You can, you can Google it yourself. Honestly, one of the best ways to know if you have this gift is if people in a difficult situation come to you for advice and, and you're able to help them figure it out. All right? If you ask a lot of questions in life, you might have this gift. If people follow your advice and their lives become more like Jesus, you might have this, this gift. Right? Sometimes the only way to tell is, is practice. But if you've got it, you need to use it. So what's all this mean? Well, that's the truth that we need to land on this morning. The truth is that the gift of wisdom and discernment makes us a 3D church. 
So I'm going to use three words to start with D. That's the 3D, okay? So 3D church. Here's the one is. One of Captain America's greatest powers is the fact that he's just older than everybody else. <laughs> he's, just, he's, he's significantly older than the rest of the team he's around, you know. In that video you saw, everyone looks like they're in their, you know, 20s on the young side, you know, early 40s maybe on the old side. Cap's 100 in that video, Right? He's just, he got put on ice and frozen in the Arctic and they revived him later. And he, he just has this perspective that seemingly is so full of wisdom. It, give, it helps him see the world in ways that others can't do it. And church, we need people to use that gift so that we can all benefit. I, I want you to think about these three D's of wisdom and discernment and what they help us do. Here's the first one. They help us define right and wrong. They help us define right and wrong. All right. Um, I, I, several years ago, I ran across this. Um, in Amazing Spider-Man number 537, <laughs> Captain America gives this epic speech to Spider-Man. Spidey has done some stuff that it kind of turned the crowd against him, and the police think he's an outlaw now. And he's, he's you know, having to talk to Captain America about this. They have this conversation. And, and he's like, how do you deal with the pressure of being like the living embodiment of America and always having to choose what's right? And Cap then begins to recite this epic speech. It was actually written in a letter. Mark Twain wrote a letter, and that's where he's in the comic he says, I memorized it so that I could remember it whenever I needed to. And he gives this speech to Spider-Man, and it's just awesome. I want to read you a portion of it. Listen, this is what he says. It doesn't matter what the press says. Isn't that epic? That's awesome. Look at that pose. He says, it doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else. The requirement that we stand up for what we believe, no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Yes! All right! I, the first time I read that, I literally got chills. I just now did again. I got goosebumps. I was like, can Captain America please run for president? I would vote for him. Of course, he'd have to run as a libertarian, and they never win. So, um, <laughs> so the world we live in is so broken. We need people to help us define right and wrong. Because our world's mixed up about that issue. Not only do we need people to help define right and wrong, we need people who can help decide in complex situations. One of the blessings of this gift is that when it's used well, it can turn difficult situations into not as difficult situations. In Acts 15, James says, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Listen, we live in a complex world that's not getting any simpler. Right? Did you notice that in Acts, James doesn't really pick a side? He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't choose, because if he chooses one side, he alienates the other and warps the, 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 the first one forever. It's a lose-lose situation. And sometimes the only way to win in a lose-lose situation is not to play the game. And he just chooses not to choose sides in that situation. What he does is he takes a really complex situation and instead of choosing sides, he chooses a third option. And, and guys, I'm just, I'm convinced, maybe this is just my own observation about the world, I'm convinced that that's kind of where we are as a people, as the church. 
I, I think choosing one side of, or the other of certain moral and political and sociological things is going to ultimately lead us into error. And maybe what we need is to pick a third option. <laughs> Rob Dreher in his book, The Benedict Option, talks about this. It's a fantastic book. He just says, listen, there, there's, you don't have to get forced into this binary, this or that, red or blue, black or, you know, it just, it, you don't have to get into that mode. That's, what, that's exactly what James does. Because here's the deal. If he goes with the Judaizer people, the gospel mission to the Gentiles is aborted before it ever really gets off the ground. But if he goes with the Gentile crew, then what happens is the church gets split. And there's a Jewish version of Christianity, and there's a Gentile version of Christianity, and the two don't really have much in common. And in John 17, Jesus prayed, I pray that they might be one, just as we are one, Father. One church was Jesus' prayer. The world we live in is so complex that we need people with this gift to help us decide what to do when it seems like we're out of good options. And I don't know about you, but I have kind of felt that tension lately. So we need, if you've got this gift, you need to use it. You need to speak into the church's life to help us understand this. The third thing, the third D that's going to make us a 3D church is to defend against error lovingly. (laughs) This is probably the most important. Okay, people with this gift help defend the church against error. In Acts 15, James' leadership at this Jerusalem council not only protected them um, or helped them make a decision in a complex situation, it protected them from error. Like I said, if he would have gone with the the Gentile iteration of church, the Jews would have fractioned off and done their own thing, and you would have had two different versions of Christianity. That's wrong. It would have been an error. But if he would have gone with the Jewish version, then the, the Gentile mission never really would have got off the ground. The church would have always been very, very Jewish. And I look out at this crowd this morning, and I don't know what family kind of family tree history you come from but I don't see any of you guys wearing a yarmulke. And I don't see any of you gals with your head covered. So I'm guessing none of you are Jewish. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you do come from Jewish stock. But if, if James would have picked one side or the other, the church would have veered off into error. And so God used him, using his gift for discernment to help keep the church on track, doctrinally. It was James' love both for Jewish and Gentile Christians that kept the church on track. And we still need people doing that. I, this may surprise you that the, if, if you're pretty driven and type A, you might not even believe that this is true. But I occasionally here at the church, we'll get letters from people. This is one I got this past week. All right? Sometimes I read them. Not all every time. Sometimes they just go straight into the circular file. Um, but occasionally, I've, I've, I got this letter. I mean, it's just page after page after page of like just whacked out conspiracy theory stuff, and China's trying to take over the government, and like all these things. And, and here I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. And I'm sitting here reading this. I'm going, dude, dude, do you have any friends who are not Christians? If they haven't heard the gospel, this was a colossal waste of time. What are you doing? You got neighbors and friends who are going to hell, and you're writing me this stuff. Because here's the deal. Here's the thing. When it is clear, and it rarely is, there's no love. They think they're being a prophetic voice. 
They think in doing this, they're seeking to correct the church from error. And yet, there's a decided lack of love in those letters. It's cutting, it's harsh, it's critical, it's mean. There's no love. That's not discernment. That's just being a jerk. Don't do that, church. If you've got this gift, you need to use it. You need to exercise it in love. Yes, defend the church from error. If I say something that you don't agree with, you're more than welcome to write me an email. You need to understand, I do my homework. I'll probably write you back. We, we can discuss it. I'll happily meet you for coffee. Clearly, I, I enjoy it. Okay? Let, yeah, let's talk about it. If that's your, please do that, but do it in love. Okay? The world is so, we live in is so full of people eager to rush to judgment and, and offer some kind of hot take on the day's news that we need people with this gift who can protect us from error, but to do that in love and, and, and help us stay focused on the mission of the church to redeem the world by guarding her doctrine and from being corrupted by the world or the, co-opted by those seeking power. Did you get the big idea today? Here it is one more time. The church needs people who can keep us on track doctrinally, and on task missionally. To believe the right things and to be on mission for Jesus. And if you have this gift, we need you to use it to help us be a 3D church, not just flat, but alive and vital and making a difference in the community. And I'm asking you, if you've got this gift, man, use it. Use it. As we close today, I want to do something a little bit different. We're going to go into a time of guided prayer. You know, part of the thing about discernment is that it takes time. Did you notice in the text in Acts 15, it says that they all got quiet. The whole church became silent and they listened. And so as, as I close the message today, we're going to go into a time of guided prayer. The piano's going to play softly just to kind of provide an undercurrent. But I'm going to just kind of guide you in some times of silent prayer. And I just want you to take a minute and just reflect on, on what God said to you through his word today. Maybe there's an area of your life where you need someone to speak into it. You need a discerning voice. Maybe you've got this gift and you don't know how to use it or, or haven't used it yet. And so it's just going to be an opportunity for you to pray about that. In a little bit, we're going to stand and sing. And when we do that, if you've never accepted Jesus, you, you don't have these powers that we've been talking about. And I want you to have them, all right? So when we stand and sing together, you're invited, if you want to follow Jesus, to come down front. We'll have people here ready to receive you. If you have a prayer need, our counselors will be down here. You can go to the next step room and talk to a leader. But for right now, let's just spend some time in prayer. I would encourage you to take whatever posture of prayer you want to take. Some of you are, are, are you know, um, it just it's, it's the most comfortable for you to remain seated and fold your hands and bow your head and close your eyes. That's, that's awesome. If you want to stand before God Almighty and raise your hands and look straight up, you can do that. You want to turn around and get on your knees before God? That's okay. You want to lay face down on the floor? That's awesome. Just you better hope no one's walking. So um, whatever posture you want to take is okay, but let's spend some time in prayer together this morning. And so I pray that you would overflow out of our lives. That, that every church, but especially Chapel Rock, would be known as a place in our community where you can receive wisdom from God. That you can be made wise for salvation and for life here on earth. Lord, your word says that you've given us everything we need for a godly life in Christ Jesus. He says that we, we should ask you for wisdom, and so we're asking today, Lord, make us wise. Help us live in a complex world and, and just and love people 
with great discernment and dedication. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?